we pray and we ask our God uh, to speak to us, to meet with us and to help us. Lord God, we have, many of us, um, this week uh, been enthused to, to read off uh, your work elsewhere in the world. Uh, we have uh, heard of uh, people speaking about revival, of people being uh, cut uh, to the heart before you in repentance and then being filled with the, the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, we, we do uh, pray that in these moments as we come to you trusting in uh, you and your means of grace that you might do something within us. Um, many of us, Lord God, we, if we're honest in, in prayer, we feel the need of renewal. And uh, we ask, Lord God, that as we come to this, such a, a well-known section of Scripture, that you would renew us and that you would instruct us. And, Lord God, that you would show us Jesus, that we might go out, that we might uh, change, Lord, as your people, that we might pursue holiness, righteous living, and not for its own sake, Lord God, but for you and for your glory and honor. And we pray that as we come to this portion of Scripture, that you might save, Lord. If there are people outside of Christ, that you might bring them near by the blood of Jesus, that you might bring them to yourself for your honor. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let me begin uh, just by, by speaking personally. Uh, just for a moment, if, if you're going to allow that. Um, for the longest time, actually, as a young Christian, I have to confess to having really struggled with the portion of Scripture that we are going to be focused on the, this morning. For As a young Christian, I struggled with the temptation or temptations of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I could see that this um, is a very high-profile uh, portion of God's Word, isn't it? In the sense that it is recorded in each of the three synoptic Gospels. So I could see, even as a, as a young believer, I could see, okay, it's high-profile. I could also see that uh, others uh, had been captivated uh, by this section of Scripture. So I, I knew that um, artists like Turner had sought to try and paint these scenes, and uh, authors like Dostoevsky, or of course Milton, I, I knew that they had sought to write about, uh, about these verses. But as a, a young believer, I really struggled to, to understand. And as a young believer, I struggled, if I'm honest, to, to love, love this portion of Scripture. But what do you all know? I'm a fool. Uh, and so over time, what God has done uh, in his goodness and by grace, he has taken this portion of scripture and he has really, truly brought it close uh, to, to my heart. He has shown me just how beautiful this section of, of the Bible is and how important it is to our understanding of this salvation that God has brought about for his people. And, and, and so I'll let you into a little secret. Um, this week, I really have prayed a very specific prayer. And the prayer is this, that if God has not already done so, that today, that he would do the same for you. 
that, that today God might bring this portion of Scripture just a little bit nearer to your heart, that by the, the end of the service that we might not all be rejoicing, that we might not all be just so enthused by this section and lifting up our voices and songs of praise to Jesus. And, and, and I want to just turn things on their head um, today. So, so last week, if you were here, you might remember that what we did is we left the, the very apex, the, the main point of the sermon right to the very end of the sermon. That's what we did. We left it right to the end. But today, because it's so important and so essential, what I want us to do is to invert that and because it is so essential, I want us to begin today with the big point, the point that should be flashing in neon lights, okay? So, uh, humbly I would ask you, if you've got a copy of the Bible, to, to open it or get there in your phone to Luke chapter 4. You do that 1 to 13. And, and what's this main point that we've got to begin with this morning? Well, let's begin by noticing and thinking about a better representative. That's flashing in neon lights. We see here a better representative, a greater representative. Okay. Right, I'm pretty sure, pretty confident, most of us can recall where we are in the sort of flow or structure of Luke's gospel. Can you remember that? Just a couple of weeks ago it was, we noticed that we're in this uh, almost like a bridge section um, where Jesus is preparing and being prepared for public ministry. Do you remember that? There's this, this preparation for public ministry that's soon to begin. What did that involve? What have we seen? We've, we've seen that baptism, then a genealogy, and there is one last event, critical event, before Jesus launches in verse 14, the public ministry. What is this? This critical event is an encounter between the Son of God, an encounter he has with the devil, the evil one, with Satan, the accuser himself. Now, before I suppose we, we maybe take a step back and consider the big picture here, I think it's worth noting who it is that orchestrates everything here. So I don't know if we can put up verse 1 or you can look at verse 1 here. Do you notice the repetition? Like that's the device that Luke is using to draw you in. Do you notice? Do you notice that it's the Holy Spirit here who is almost, he's almost playing the role of a boxing promoter? Isn't he, the Holy Spirit, is the one who is arranging this heavyweight contest? Do you see, it is God himself who is orchestrating, overseeing this encounter between Jesus and, and the evil. God oversees this. God orchestrates this. So, so we come back, don't we, with the question, why? I mean, why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into this encounter with the evil one. Well, as you did last week, um, just for a moment, please think not so much about Luke's gospel, but just for a second, think about Matthew's gospel. So I said, uh, right at the outset of the sermon, I said that this is recorded, this event, in each of the three synoptics, isn't it? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, I'm 
wrong about a lot of things, and I could be wrong about this. Um, but I think it's actually Matthew's record of this event that is actually the more famous uh, record, the more famous account. Certainly, like I've been a Christian for a couple of decades, and certainly it's Matthew's record of the temptations of Jesus that I've heard preached far more often than Luke's account. So Matthew's record, more famous. Well, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew makes one big theological point, and it's a theological point that we can still hear echoes of in Luke's gospel here before us. So do you want to get it? So the point that Matthew gets is that Jesus Christ here is the true and greater Israel of God. Do you follow? So Matthew's point is that where the people of Israel post-Exodus, they've been tested, and what happens? They fail the test. Matthew presents Jesus as what? As the one who has passed the test. Do you see the idea? So in Matthew's gospel, you've got Jesus is the greater, the true Israel of God. Now, if you're really quiet, so don't snore. If you're really quiet, you can probably hear the echoes of that point still in Luke's gospel, can you? Like, look at it with me for a second. First of all, notice the location, location verse 1. So where is Jesus when he's tested? He's in the wilderness, just as the people of Israel were in the, in the wilderness when they were tested, right? So you've got what? Location? Second of all, think about duration. So for how long is Jesus tested here? We notice it 40 days, just what do we know about the people of Israel? They were tested for 40 years, weren't they? So you've got location, you've got duration. What about the quotations? Because I reckon all of us have noticed that Jesus responds, there's three tests, right? Jesus responds to each of the three tests by quoting the Bible, but from where? Deuteronomy. But in each instance, Jesus is quoting from portions of Scripture that address the feelings of the people of Israel in their testing. So, so do you see, there's echoes here. Luke making the same point, and he's saying, Jesus, the, the, the true and, and greater Israel, the one whose ministry is going to achieve what the people of Israel were unable to achieve. Jesus has come to complete full and perfect obedience to God. Do you hear it? Do you hear the echo? But I'll, I'll tell you this, that is not Luke's main point. Um, I was going to ask you, I thought about asking this in preparation, I was going to ask you if you remember, if you were here, if you remember what we looked at uh, last Sunday morning. But I reckon most of you uh, can remember that blissful sort of 32-minute sleep uh, that you had uh, last Sunday morning as your minister battled with a genealogy. It's probably a little unfair. Some of you were awake. And if you, if you were awake, maybe you can remember where the author here, Luke, where he ended his genealogy. Now, can we remember it? Do you remember what Matthew did? Matthew's focusing on Israel, and he ends Jesus' genealogy with Abraham. Remember that? What does Luke do? Do you remember the big thing that Luke does. He, he's thinking about the implications of 
Jesus' ministry for all of humanity, not just the Jews. So Luke goes beyond Abraham. Where does he land? He lands with Adam and Adam's special relationship with with God. Do you remember that? That's where he ends. That's right in the back. (laughs) Do you not see what is supposed to be in the back of our minds as we come into Luke chapter 4? What are we supposed to be thinking about here as we read about Jesus? We're supposed to be thinking about the Garden of Eden, aren't we? And we're supposed to be thinking about the fall. Come on, you you can all see it. Luke has just mentioned Adam (laughs) and temptation in the one breath. That's what he's done. So we're, we're supposed to be thinking about that event where what happens? You remember? Where, oh, don't you see? Where a representative of his people, he was faced with the evil one. He was tempted. Adam fails the test and he plunges, plunges all of subsequent humanity into this estate of sin and misery. So do you not see now why this is so precious? Well, these, these events are, are so special. What is the big point that Luke's making? He's saying to us, he's saying Jesus has come to right all of Adam's wrongs. That's what we're supposed to see in this portion of Scripture. That's his mission. He's come to right it, right all of the wrongs. The, even though Jesus here in these verses is faced, don't you notice, he's faced with even more acute temptation than Adam was. Do you recognize that? I think about Adam. Where was he? He's in this beautiful, comfortable garden, isn't he? Where is Jesus here in this fallen, sin-scarred world, in this wilderness where thorns and briars? And, and what about Adam? You know, what's the story? Adam is surrounded by all of these other fruit-bearing trees that he can have. Can he? What about Jesus here? Did you notice the detail? Your Lord here is on the brink of starving to, 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 to death. Even though the, the temptation was more acute, what does Jesus do here? He resists, doesn't he? And he emerges absolutely triumphant. This temptation that we're seeing here, this ministry rather, was a ministry that would regain the paradise that was lost by Adam. And it's a ministry that would regain it for all Jesus represents. And isn't it actually the Apostle Paul who puts it most beautifully and most succinctly in Romans 5, listen, I think about the Garden of Eden and think about this portion of Scripture. Paul says, For through one man's disobedience all died, so also through one man's act of obedience all are made alive. Why, Christian friends, should this section of Scripture be brought ever so close to your heart? Why should it be precious to you? Because here you are seeing sent by God is a new representative for us. And a representative that has done what Adam could not, a representative who has resisted satanic temptation and done it for you. He did it for us. So we see the main point Luke's making, a better representative, um, 
for just for a moment, I want to just try and strip everything down and focus on the bottom line uh, of the gospel, the bottom line of Christ, the Christian faith, especially if, because it's a holiday weekend, maybe you're new and maybe you're passing through St. Peter's. Um, if, if I was asked, if I only had a couple of words and asked uh, to, to mention the bottom basic line of the Christian faith, I think I would say this, that for us, Christ has done all. I think, I think that's where I would go. That Christ has done for us. He has done for his people. He has done all. I would love you to understand and hear that the message of Christianity is not that with God's help, we can change. That's not it. The message of Christianity is not that we can pull our socks up and turn over a new leaf and try and achieve some favor with God. No, listen, because we simply cannot do that. You ready to hear what God has done? God for us has sent his son, his beloved son. And it is by his perfect life that he has earned heaven for us. And it's by his sin-bearing death that Christ has taken the due penalty for our sin away from us and onto himself. And it's by, by his resurrection unto life. You know what we see? We see the Father's acceptance of Jesus' work. Do, do you hear it? Christ has done for us, he has done all. It's all of Christ. Now, now that is, is everything for the Christian church. But I want you to appreciate that there's something else that's true, and it's this, that Christ is also our example. Now, did you hear that? Christ is He's there, our Savior, and he is our representative. And we see that here. But Jesus' life is also an example for his people to follow. And, and don't you recognize that that is ever so important in a portion of Scripture like this? Christ here, he is our representative. But he is also here an example to follow. So this is, this is what I want to do in the remainder of the time that we have. Very briefly, hear that loud and clear. I want to fly through these three temptations, these tests that are before us, and I'll tell you why. I want us to try and extract a lesson in each of the tests to help us, to help you, Christian friends, in your battle with sin. A lesson in each of these, a lesson from Jesus to help us in our battle with temptation. Okay? So, Let's think about the first temptation. Can we put up, or can you look at, please, uh, verses 3 and 4? 3 and 4. So, Jesus is in the wilderness, led there by the Holy Spirit. The devil comes to him. What's the first test? Would you read it with me, please? Do you see? If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. There you go. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. We, we all follow what we got there? What, what should we consider about that? I think for starters, I don't want us to make the mistake of thinking that there is, uh, there is doubt hanging in the air here. Do you notice the question? If you are the son of, please don't, don't think that is a degree of uncertainty or, or doubt. No, in Jesus' baptism, 
just a, a moment ago, all have heard the voice of the Father confirm, you are my beloved son. All have heard that, the, the devil and his fallen angels, they have, they have heard this. And the construction in uh, the original language, we can read that, and it has the force of, not so much if you are the son of, of God, but since you are the son of God. Do you follow? So there is not a degree of uncertainty or a degree of, of, of doubt here. But I would ask, well, what, what about the specifics of this test? I want to put it to you. Um, are you somewhat underwhelmed by this first test? After all, the, the devil, are you underwhelmed by it? I mean, the, the devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness and he doesn't say, if you're the son of God, smash some planets together, you know, or, or if you're the son of God, turn everything in the world upside down. What does he say? If you're the son of God, there's a stone there, turn it into a roll. There's a stone, turn it into, are you underwhelmed? Oh, if you are even remotely in danger of being underwhelmed, put yourself in Jesus' position. Because what, what, what have you read there? That he has gone a full day without anything to eat? No. Has he gone two full days without anything to eat? No, your Lord has gone 40 days. 40 days. And 40 nights without anything to eat. The Lord Jesus Christ there, do you see that he is so weak? 40 days without food. He, your, your savior there, he is thin, emaciated at, at this point. Perhaps even, perhaps unable even to hold himself up with, with weakness. And there is Satan with the temptation of, here is some food to eat. Underwhelmed? I mean, is this not so much like Satan is in, in your life and in my life? Isn't this what he does? Doesn't he come to us just where we are, perhaps our most vulnerable? Isn't that where he goes? And he, and he says to you, doesn't he, whether it's with lust or whether it's with drink or whether it is with food, and he says, you need, you need to do this. You, you, you need this. And I wonder if this morning, Christian friend, you can see properly. And I wonder if you can see right into the heart of this temptation. Can you see what the, the essence of what Satan is doing here? He is trying to get Jesus to use his divine power for his own ends. Isn't that it? Satan here trying to get Jesus to undermine his humanity. Something that would devastate his, his mission. Trying to get Jesus to, to doubt his father's provision. Use your divine power. Turn the stone into bread. Use it for your own good. That would have been devastating for us. Now, I made you a promise. A promise that in each of the tests, we would try and, and take a lesson from, from Jesus out of this. So, so what about here? What did, what did we notice a moment ago? In each, what does Jesus do? Come on. In each of the three tests, Jesus responds with Scripture. Do you notice that's all he does? <laughs> so the only weapon that Christ uses when he's under attack like this is he unsheathes the sword of the Spirit 
which is the Word of God. That's it. And so I want to suggest something to you as a church. I want to suggest that what we need to do quite desperately is recover the lost art of Scripture memorization. How does that land with you? What do you think when you hear your minister say that? We need to recapture the lost art of Scripture memorization. Now, maybe you can at least see why I mention it. Um, generations past, so maybe some of our older, uh, I've always got to look up when I say this so that I don't catch anyone's eye. <laughs> some of our older saints in the room, <laughs> some of them will remember what the Christian life was like in decades past or in, in generations past. Now, before we spent so much of our time scrolling through Twitter, uh, or before it was just like the expected thing that an evening would end just watching rubbish and Netflix or whatever. Really and truly, an expected part of the Christian life was to seek to memorize parts of God's Word. And there's, there's people nodding, people remember that it was expected. It was just assumed that Christians would, would try and store up memorize big parts of section. They would do it themselves, but they would also ensure that it was done by their children. Now, if all the lights went off and it was dark (laughs) just now, and there was a spotlight on us, on you, honestly, how much of Scripture could we recite? Like, I know, you know, looking around the room, we're going to be able to knock out the park with a verse or two, aren't we? We've got to get there, and we're going to remember a few phrases here and there. What about sections of Scripture? Could we do that? Could I do that? And then, if the lights went out again, and the lights went back on, and all the kids were through, and the, the, the light landed on our kids, how much Scripture would our children be able to recite? We, we need to, as a church, as Christians, recover the lost art of Scripture memorization. And if you consider this portion of Scripture, you consider why. Can you see it? So that at the point of temptation, when temptation comes to you this week, you can respond in a Christ-like manner. That at temptation comes and you can respond with words of Scripture on your lips and, and words that clearly focus you on divine truth and clearly repel the evil one. I'll, I'll read you a, a verse from Psalm 119, and I'll read it to you because I don't know it by heart. So the psalmist says this. Now, you make sure you get the logic from the psalmist. He says this, I have stored up your word in my heart. I've memorized scripture. What's the logic? Why? That I might not sin against you. So we see this first temptation. We see the need for scripture memorization. Second temptation. If we look at that, I wonder if you can see the trap that we could easily fall into it. So we're looking at verses five and six, and you can have a look at it. Do you see the trap here? I'll read it. The devil took Jesus up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Um, What's the trap? I think the trap that we could fall into is is seeking to spend all of our time trying to establish, was this a physical thing 
or was this a vision? Do, do you see this? He takes them up, he shows them all. I am going to adopt uh, John Calvin and his perspective on this, because John Calvin is very profound here. And he says, was this a physical thing or was this a vision? I don't know. <laughs> and I'm going to adopt that line as well. I don't know. And I'm not sure that it matters so much, because is it not much more important to notice what Satan says to our Lord? Look what he does. Satan promises to give all of these kingdoms of the world to Jesus, to give them. Now, what, what do you think? Do you hear that? Like, I, I think first off the bat, we're kind of forced to ask, well, could he do that? Are you asking that? Like, was it within Satan's power to actually hand over all of the authority, all of these kingdoms to Jesus? And I think if you meditate on it for just for a moment, you realize, well, it's a, it's a half-truth, isn't it? A best, isn't it? Yes, in John's gospel, we read that the devil is the ruler of this world. But what do we know? Even at this point in redemptive history, that power Satan had was limited, wasn't it? It was partial. He's a fallen angel. And clearly, if you read this portion of Scripture, clearly the devil had great power, but he was on a leash, wasn't he? He was on a chain. But again, as we stare into this, this temptation here, I, I wonder if you see what it is all about. Do you recognize, Christian friend, what, 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 what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do with all of these kingdoms of the world? Do you see his purpose Satan is trying to get Jesus to abandon the path that was set out for him by God the Father. And I, I love how just sometimes in the life of the church, sometimes everything comes together, just timing-wise. I, I, I think that's the case with this. I really do. I love it. I was thinking about it, reflecting on, on it this morning, even so Satan is trying to get Jesus to abandon this, this path set out by God. But what do you know? Look at the timing of this. You know from Daniel 7, which Will has just recently preached on, and you know from Psalm 2, which we were quoting just two weeks ago, you know that the Son of God had already been promised all of these kingdoms. Don't you? Various points of the Old Testament, the Son has already been promised. You, you know, authority, glory, all of the kingdoms of the earth, they're going to go to the Son. But I'm asking you, what was the path set out for all of this glory and honor? Was it not the path of suffering? Isn't that it? Like all of this authority, all of this glory would come to the Son, but what did he have to do? He had to take on flesh. And he had to come and he had to suffer and suffer in your stead and in your place, suffer and die. So do you not now hear what Satan is saying? As he shows him all the kingdoms, Satan whispers to Jesus, you don't have to suffer. Satan here is saying, I've got a shortcut. You can have all of this glory and all of this honor, and I will give you it now. Satan's whispering to him, you can have the crown and you can forsake the cross. And as a Christian, aren't, aren't you filled with wonder and joy to realize Jesus resisted even that? I mean, think about what's on the table. It's everything. 
Here it's all kingdoms and all glory and honor. It's every material thing. And yet, because he loves you so much, Jesus says, no. And he resists. So yes, we're filled with joy and wonder and amazement. But we do ask, well, what is the lesson here for our fight against sin? Well, I I think very honestly, Christian friend, that this text should remind you of who it is just now that is in heaven acting on your behalf. Who is there just now but someone who understands? In heaven, you have an advocate just now, and he is one who has been tempted in all ways, just as you have been, but he has been tempted and resisted it. He has said no. So what should that lead to this week? Some of us in this room, we are going to be facing the full frontal attack of Satan this week. We are going to be attacked. We are going to be tempted. We are going to be tested. What do we do? Well, yes, we respond with Scripture on our lips, but also, given who is in heaven just now, don't we cry out to Jesus? Don't we, at the moment of temptation, don't we say, Lord, please help me? Because there is one who can turn us away from that temptation. I'll read you Hebrews 2.18. Because Jesus has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We cry out to Jesus. And then the third temptation, and most briefly, um, if we can put up, uh, or you can look at verses 9 and 10. Let's look at the third temptation. Um, I I wonder as you do that, as your eye uh, scans this temptation and the pinnacle of the temple and so forth, do you notice Anything strange in Luke's account? Uh, I think if you're familiar with these things, you'll perhaps see that the tests in Luke's gospel are in a different order, aren't they? So the, the other synoptics are different, a different order. Matthew's second temptation is Luke's last. Now, I don't think that's a a big deal or a worry for us. I think because Luke in his gospel has such a focus on the city of Jerusalem, what he does is he reorders these that we end there. And if you look at this temptation, that's right, isn't it? That's where we go. We go to Jerusalem, or more specifically, we go to where? We go to the temple. Now, what, what is it? If you look at it, what is it that Satan does? Satan has The devil has Jesus stand on the highest point of the temple. So I think, I was looking at this this week, I think this is the southeast corner of the temple. It's overlooking the Kidron Valley. And uh, one of the Jewish historians at the time, he tells us it was so high that if you were to stand up there, you were guaranteed to feel dizzy. Sounds horrendous to me as somebody who's scared of heights. But Satan has Jesus stand up at this top, the pinnacle of the temple. And what is this temptation? It is, he tells Jesus to, 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 to jump off. Does, does that sound odd to us? I think maybe the Old Testament texts that Satan cites here, they help us to understand what does Satan want Jesus to do? Do you notice he wants Satan, he wants Jesus to put God to the test? What's the sin in this third temptation? Is a, a temptation towards the sin of presumption. Satan wants Jesus to presume upon God, saying to Jesus, you jump off, God will come to your, your rescue. Do you see what's going on? It's, do you see how critical it is? 
Satan wants Jesus to reverse the true and holy and proper order of things. To have God the Father bend to Jesus rather than the the other way around. Something again that would be catastrophic for our salvation. Now we are... We are so eager to be armed for the fight against sin. And so we want to know, don't we, what is the lesson here from, from me for you this week? Well, let's just let's end it if we look at verse 13. If you could look to the last phrase here, what happens? Satan uh, tempts, Jesus resists. And then we read this. When the devil had ended every temptation... Do you see what's next? He departed from him until an opportune time. What, what strikes you? I think probably what strikes us all is that there's, a, a, there's an ominous note. You know, he, he, he departs until another. He'll be back. But what else? Isn't it something to read that the devil left? Isn't it something to read that the temptation came to an end. And I will be honest with you, Christian friend, I don't think we believe in that reality enough. That we swallow hook, line, and sinker a lie that the devil tells us. And that is even if we resist temptation, that temptation will just keep coming. We believe that, oh, you know, okay, I'll resist for a moment. I'll resist again. I'll resist it. But that temptation is going to be constant from here on in. It's, it's going to keep coming. Now, that is a lie. That's a lie that the devil is trying to sell to the people of God. And so this week, at the point of temptation, I'm urging you to, to go to Scripture, do as Jesus does. And you cry out to Jesus for help. But you know what we need to do? We need to believe God. And we need to believe James chapter 4, verse 7. Now listen to what God promises you. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We need to believe that for a change, don't we? And I, I end with this, like I started with this prayer, this specific prayer. Like the prayer, that, the hope that, that God this morning would take this portion of Scripture and just draw it a little bit closer to your heart. You can at least see why this should be precious. Don't you? Because as you today look back on your life and you think about temptation, what must you conclude if you're anything like me? What do you see? As you look back, even recently, you see failure. Don't you? Like even if you just look back recently, even in the last few hours, even in the last few days, few weeks, what do you see? This litany of times and situations where faced with temptation, you have immediately, it seemed, yielded. Immediately just dishonored God. You failed. We fail. All of us fail. And so why is this section so precious? Why is it good news? Because it shows you what God has done for you. And he has sent you a savior. God has sent you a representative. One whose sinlessness is your sure and forever hope. So I end reminding you of the most basic reality of the Christian faith. You ready? If you're in Jesus Christ and you're all of that temptation in your head just now. All of that sin and your, your fallenness. 
If you are in Jesus Christ, heed it, you are forgiven. All of it. All of it. All of that weakness, all of that dishonor, all of that being quick to sin and rebel against God. The blood of Jesus Christ has washed it clean away. Don't we love this section of scripture? Don't we love all the more the risen Lord Jesus Christ? And for why? For we're the first Adam has fallen. The last Adam. For us, he has stood and stood strong. Friends, let's bow before Jesus and let's pray. Lord God, there, there, there are depths to these <laughs> verses, these words of Scripture that we are nowhere near plumbing. But Lord God, we thank you that here you, you set us truth and example to follow in our fight against sin and temptation. And we ask, Lord, that we wouldn't hear this and then walk away empty. Lord, we ask that in the next hours and, and, and days that you would help us to, to go to Scripture, to, to cry out to you, to believe that if we resist the evil one, he will flee from us. But much more than that, Lord, we are praising you for what you have done. In that, not a garden, in that barren, hostile wilderness, for us, you have said no. You have resisted the temptation of the evil one. And we praise you for that. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.